everyone welcome back to the pod and the pendulum your horror movie podcast covering all horror movies all franchises one movie in one episode at a time i am your host mike snooney and joined once again by our lovely crew up first jerry smith jerry how uh, fantastic are we feeling tonight on a I'm scale of great. one then i i would say about a two no i'm just kidding i am, <laughs> I am definitely at a 10 i am so excited to talk about poltergeist mm-hmm. too I, i'm in the minority of people that prefer it over the first one so I'm yeah, that's a small claim. club. That's a that's a small <laughs> club overall. Like uh, just you. Yes, just party one, Jerry, in this one. We also have Brian back with us. Brian, how are we? I'm doing great. Doing great. I I actually really love this one too. Mm-hmm. It's a party of two. Fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, All right. And finally we have Veronica back again. Veronica, how's it going? It's good. Let's make that a party of three because wow. this and Poltergeist, the original Poltergeist, they're back to back wonderful movies for me. Excellent. Oh, so I want to I want to cue like this is how we do it right now. <laughs> I think we're just going to call two more guests. Uh, yeah, we'll have a party of five at that Less. point. <laughs> <laughs> so oh. yeah, maybe Nev Campbell can come on the show. Mm. <laughs> I can, you know, you know I the one celebrity I ever met that I, I have a crush on is um, Amber Benson from Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and she like produced and starred in this movie called Dust Up, Ooh. and I got to host like a special screening of it with her there. Like we took her to dinner, and I told her my wife died in a fire where. <gasps> <laughs> Had to save the pets, and my wife was sitting right next to me. She's like, "I'm right here." <laughs> oh, great! Yeah, I I thought it was funny, but I definitely slept on the couch for a week. <laughs> I would do the same thing if I met Craig T. Nelson, though. Like, my husband is back burner. Craig T. Nelson is like, "Hey, come here." <laughs> Especially, especially his mullet in this movie. Oh, love it. Love it. Oh, we definitely have to discuss that. <laughs> so we are here to talk about Poltergeist 2 tonight. Uh, yes. Poltergeist 2, The Other Side, the 1986-1986 sequel to the 1982 smash hit uh, Poltergeist. And doing some research, what I found really interesting, it says it's directed by Brian Gibson, secretly directed by Toby Hooper. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wouldn't that have been great? 
So, <laughs> like I did it for some Dr. Pepper and cigars. Would have been wonderful overall. <laughs> so this was a first time watch for me. So and I found it, you know, and I, you know, the term underappreciated or underrated probably gets thrown around more often than it should. But I would definitely say that I underappreciated this film. Like I really had no urge to seek it out ever and then found it kind of a delight to watch uh, for the first time overall. So I'm looking forward to diving in today. Uh, Jerry, we were talking a bit, uh, uh, you know, you were saying earlier how this was maybe your favorite of the Poltergeist lot. What, when did you discover this movie? Was it upon release or? Well, I, yeah, actually, you know, like, uh, like I said, last episode, I was a big fan of the first one since like childhood, but uh, the second one, I would see clips of it like on HBO, you know, in the, you know, around the time that it was on uh, cable and stuff, but it, it just kind of weirded me out. Like the, I would just see flashes of like, you know, Reverend Kane as, and as Ooh. a kid, it scared the hell out of me. Yeah. So I in it, I actually didn't see this one for the first time until about, I'd say about like six years ago. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Oh really? Yeah. Wow. That's really interesting. Yeah. I, I came across it and I, I finally watched it I and mean, it was kind of like Texas Chainsaw for me. I had seen the entire series except the original until I was 26. Interesting. Because I was, I was wow. Wow. Because my dad picked me up from kindergarten one day and they were talking about Texas Chainsaw. They had just watched on a VHS and they, and they like every other idiot was saying that, you know, it was true and blah, blah, blah. So, you know, I wasn't even right. fucking with that shit. And with Poltergeist 2, I mean, just seeing Reverend Kane for the first time as a Ooh, kid, like, yeah. that, that scarred me more than, like, the picture of, like, John Wayne Gacy as Pogo. No, right. you're right. Like, Reverend Kane. So, for me, Poltergeist was always the big movie. But I think my parents might have bought a two-pack, right? Because I don't know where the – when I was a kid, I didn't know where Poltergeist ended and Poltergeist 2 began. Because to me, in my head, they were both the same movie. So, Reverend Kane was always associated with Poltergeist for me. And mm-hmm. Reverend Kane was terrifying, the villain that is played here is so underrated as a villain because he is he, oh he gets under your skin his 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 appearance his <laughs> voice his sweet soft voice he's oh he's so perfect and he's so terrifying and when you're a child it's almost like this lullaby being sung to you as you hear him talk to Carol Ann and Mm. Poltergeist 1 and 2 to me are just very much uh, a a mesh in my head totally Mm -hmm. and also I mean this movie came out right around the time that not only the satanic panic era was going on Mm -hmm. but also things were it was fresh in like uh, you know America's like eyes kind of like the Adam Walsh stuff that happened Mm. you know so kidnappings were kind of like you know what I mean you'd have like that or films like Savannah Smiles uh, or Savannah, or whatever the fuck that movie is called. No, that's that's right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like they'd have all that stuff. Uh, you know, uh, my aunt's friend in high school was abducted and for years in a long time ago, and uh, he came back and they made a movie about it called "I Know My Name Is Steven. Wow. Okay. Wow. Cornemic uh, played him in the movie, and I mean, growing up in the '80s, I mean, that was like huge. So yeah. I mean. Watching it 
for the first time about six years ago, that, that first scene with Kane, you know, where Caroline gets lost and she comes across him and he kind of holds her hand and like, I'll sing you a song, tell your mama. It's like, what the fuck, man? Like, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's, it's I, so yeah. scary. And you know, like I said, last episode, the first film's very much about like what we're afraid of. And that's what makes it so scary. But the second one, there's just something so wrong with this movie in a good way. Like all of my childhood fears, I wasn't afraid of monsters. I was afraid of humans, you know? And I think a lot of us that went through a lot of shit were. But even not just like abuse stuff, but I was afraid of of God. I was afraid of all this stuff because yes. I was brought to church. And, you know, we'd go to youth group as a kid and we'd have sleepovers. And they'd say, you know, if you don't pray and ask God for forgiveness, you're going to go to hell tonight. Or, you know, they'd make me burn all the things I was into. Like, this is real shit, you know? So mm-hmm. religion and God scared the hell out of me. So watching this is about six years ago, seeing Reverend Kane and everything that he does throughout the film, the way he tries to get into uh, Steve's head, you know? Yes. It builds, and I'm not trying to offend any, you know, like religious listeners or anything, you know? Like, I totally respect anyone's beliefs. But it, it took me back to being a kid. And having these fears and feeling so manipulated by by preachers and stuff throughout my life that mm-hmm. like this movie like it scares me as an adult much yes. more than the first mm-hmm. film does. Jerry, you're right. I mean, it it when I was a kid, I was in the same position as you. I mean, going to Sunday school and being dragged to church every Sunday, and then suddenly Cain comes in and sings these sweet songs about um just horrifying things, but with that sweet voice and um just the are you lost, sweetheart? It it's so um I don't know the right way to put it, but it's so fraudulent, but it's so, um, so real. The way that, the way that he is portrayed and the way that religion is portrayed and this cult that, again, this is such an underrated movie and he is such an underrated villain. You don't hear enough about this because this was genuinely terrifying as a child. And Jerry, you said it like it's genuinely terrifying as an adult. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Veronica, you had said how it felt like one movie to you, and I would say, yeah, I would say the fact that you have the Freelings all back, that they're they're still the focus as a family of the movie, that you mm-hmm. still, even though the location has changed, you still do see like the gutted out suburbs at that point yeah. where everyone is left out, uh, and you have like Zelda Rubenstein uh, sure. returning as well in her role. It does feel like one, although like the the theme of the film changed is overall it does feel like one overarching story which is very cool and, and while the theme does change of course it changes like originally it's it's a family theme but this is also just the generational tale of women it's still mm-hmm. a very family-centered yeah. theme so it's ah, i i i Again, like just rewatching this as an adult, it, it floored me the scenes that weren't in Poltergeist One. Like I think Brian, you're the one that said that these are the these are the images that stuck with you, right? Poltergeist yes. Two. Yeah. Yes, I saw this one um, when I was eight when it oh, first no. came out. Yeah, so I mean that's that's the age, you know, that's the age that seems to have the movie that just deeply scars someone you know everyone has seen that movie when they were eight that uh that did it for them for their whole life and this is the one for me um 
So, because we saw it when it first came out on VHS, and I remember watching it once with, I, I think it was all four of us, my mom, dad, and my brother, and then the next day it was just my brother and I watched it again, and I didn't watch it again for 30 years. It affected me so much. Mm-hmm. So, so when I watched it, uh, I, I watched it again for the first time in, you know, 30 plus years, just like, uh, a month ago. And, and I was, and I hadn't remembered much about it when I sat down to watch it again. And then those images would come on. I was like, Oh, that was it. And that one. And I remember that. And uh, all I wrote a bunch of them down this time watching it again yesterday, just because it so affected me. And I was trying to figure out why, and um, this is going to be a little crazy. And it's Kane reminds me of my great grandfather. Mm-hmm. And not so much with the 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 religious element or the voice or any of that, but he would always wear dark clothes. He was always in a suit. He was thin and sort of gaunt looking, and he was mm-hmm. the biggest, evilest son of a bitch you could imagine. <laughs> I mean, he was totally frightening uh, to me as a kid, and I just got a horrible feeling from him. And years later, I would hear all these stories about him that, yeah, he was a pretty bad guy. <laughs> and so, so, so it was like, so I think that sort of got to me too. So Kane was always so terrifying to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, just to speak on that, I mean, the actor who played him, Julian Beck, correct? He's a Shakespearean mm-hmm. trained actor. He's 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 known as a brilliant actor. And I, I don't know if this is how he originally was um, looking. Right. I mean, but he was dying of cancer at the time that the movie was shot, mm-hmm. which makes me as an adult have more empathy for the actor and, and a little bit more. um a little bit less fear for the, for Reverend Kane, just looking at it from an adult's perspective and, and knowing what the actor himself must have been going through. But just as a child, the look of this man was was just innate. It was like staring mortality in the face. Mm-hmm. And for, for me, like I, again, hadn't seen this movie until about a week ago, but I even I knew the character of Kane. Like I was mm-hmm. familiar because he's such an he's an iconic villain. Uh, or an iconic horror movie character. And like, it's just, it's, he is, you know, Julian Beck is just so creepy looking in this movie. And mm-hmm. again, that first scene where he walks through the person. Um, yes. But that, then, that, I, oh, I remembered that so well. <laughs> he's, yeah. you know, the film, like right from jump street, the film, um, doesn't hide their intentions with this character in any way, shape or form. And yet he can interact with the Freelings overall. He, you know, comes off as like this kind of friendly, almost harmless, very caring person. Um, and even in when he's singing, um, Carol Ann. It's like, the Lord is in right. God is in his holy temple. <laughs> that's right. Like, that, that's what it is. Talk, and it's supposed to be this. Now. It's so, ugh. It's supposed to be sweet and loving and and caring and uplifting, but it's just this this undercurrent of just real grotesqueness to it overall, which I really love. And uh, you know, Jerry Goldsmith beautifully weaves that 
that mm-hmm. music into, especially the the later the endings mm-hmm. of it's the movie. Everywhere. It's so mm-hmm. it's and it's it's creepy. It gives it sort of this weird minor feeling and everything. It's mm-hmm. very. It's, yeah. it's just as good of a score as the first one. Yeah, and I would say that having Goldsmith back because you don't have Spielberg really involved with this one at all. Um, I mean, I know Toby Hooper secretly directed it, but besides that, <laughs> not really, not really involved. Though this is the work of of Brian Gibson along with um, writers Michael Grace and and Mark Victor. Um, but I think having the cast and then having that um, score by Goldsmith kind of weave its way through does give it a feeling of continuity as well. Well, also, I mean, also, uh, Victor and uh, Michael Grice, like, they co-wrote the original, too. Uh, uh, I thought Spielberg co-wrote? No, no, it was it was all three of them. Okay. It wasn't just Spielberg. Yeah, no, they, they definitely, they co-wrote it. Uh, so, I mean, they, they knew the characters well, and I think mm-hmm. one of the magical things, because I just wanted to use that word once on this episode, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> about the second movie is the first film... I mean, anyone who's a parent, and I mean, I guess some people who aren't, can identify with the kind of themes of, you know, the struggle of being a parent and kind of learning what it is to be a parent, kind of like we talked on the last episode. And watching Poltergeist 2 as an adult, uh, the themes in this one, I think, resonated and hit home with me even more. Because you already know the family because the first movie was written so well. Mm -hmm. You already know the characters, you know who they are. So... Poltergeist 2 doesn't rely on that setup because it from the beginning, you don't get character development. What you get is a continuation into the darker aspects of the character. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, in the first film, we were all scared of something as a kid, whether it's clowns and that kind of stuff. But what the second film is, is taking our demons and what we struggle with the most and having this evil try to like tear us apart from the people we love. And there's so many scenes in this movie, so many scenes that illustrate that. I mean, any kid that grew up feeling kind of awkward or homely and stuff can identify with how traumatic something like having braces or something like that is. Oh man. Yeah, exactly. So how is Robbie affected? That's used against him, you know, or I mean, anyone who, uh, I mean, I'm not trying to get too personal about this, but anyone who's dealt with uh, alcoholism or drinking mm-hmm. or that kind of stuff. I mean, that is how Kane is able to almost divide the family in this movie mm-hmm. is kind of bringing out those demons. I mean, I think this, the scene with Steve getting drunk and drinking that, that, that oh, mezcal no. worm. Yeah. And I mean, he becomes everything that everything that, that people struggling with alcoholism hopes they don't become you know what i mean like mm-hmm. yeah I, I, I'm, I'm not like slamming drinking whatsoever i mean if it works for people that's fine but in my own personal life anytime that i was struggling with something like that i would just become someone i'm not not in like a physically violent way it's just like it just wasn't a good fit you know with steve he gets drunk and he becomes like just a horrible person for like mm-hmm. that scene and it, it takes it takes something as i mean it might sound silly but it takes love and him realizing what means everything to him to snap out of that. And what Poltergeist 2 is to me, it's about a family learning to go through what comes after trauma. Yes. You know? Mm-hmm. It's, it's all about rebuilding yourself. Yes. And having that fractured foundation at the beginning, but learning how to rebuild it and get even stronger. And I think that's why the movie just hits me so hard, and I love it so much. 
Well, the Freelings, and in particular Steve, are in a very interesting place at the start of this movie. And I think one of the things that's interesting about this film is the way it explores masculinity and the way it explores the expectations that men often put on themselves or, you know, what others put upon them at all. Because all throughout Poltergeist, like, Steve Freeling is a success. Basically, like, he was there the top salesperson mm-hmm. in the real estate company. Um, he was on track to become a partner. Like he had, you know, wonderful, perfect family, a lovely home that people were basically wanting to move into that development in droves. Like they kept like developing, developing, developing. They could not make houses fast enough uh, to keep up with the demand. Now all that's been taken away from him and he is living with his wife's mother in a lovely home, by the way. <laughs> there yes. are needs. So, you know, the family is by no means destitute. Um, they have a lovely roof over their head. They have a mother-in-law who's very supportive. Like, she's not sure. into Steve. She's not saying you need to get – like, she's being very accommodating to them overall. Basically, the family's able to go out and do shopping, Um they don't look any worse of the wear aside from the fact that they don't have a television in their home. And yet, like, this feeling of failure is really overtaking Steve at this point because he's not the one that can provide for his family anymore. And, yes. you know, to your point, Jerry, in the first episode, you talked about, you know, Steve not really having a lot going on for him overall. Um, you know, we talked about they were really young parents overall. Like he doesn't have a tremendous skill set. So he's like, well, I guess since I can't sell real estate, all I really know how to do is sell. I'll do vacuum cleaners. Also, um, uh, I think it's really important. And it's something I just noticed on this rewatch. Uh, I rewatched it today again, mm-hmm. actually. Uh, I don't know if you guys noticed, but do you did you like pinpoint exactly where Kane realized how to get to Steve? it's when okay see every time i've seen it before i thought it was through the alcohol scene sure yeah yeah it's the first time steve sees kane when he comes up Mm -hmm. to the door and he's trying to get inside what Mm -hmm. does steve do what does steve do to try to get kane off of there he basically he basically like accuses kane of doing what he's doing He's like, oh, we don't need any door-to-door salesmen. Shit, mm-hmm. dude, because, you're right. Oh, you're right. Steve's so upset and insecure that that is what his life has amounted to. Right. And it's further illustrated in the scene actually before when he's trying to make light and a joke out of how desperate he feels mm-hmm. to his life. You know, like, hey, it's okay. I like putting this around my shoulder. I like doing this. It's okay, you know? Oh, yeah. my God. It's that so, moment. Jerry, it's that that's moment. a great observation. Yeah. And that's when Kane turns around and comes back and talks yeah. to him and gets him and that's where that let me in scene comes in, right? Yep. And right. yeah, oh man. So even though like the family's in a safe, secure place for all intents and purposes overall, because Steve is not the one providing for them, he feels like this massive failure. And how hard and does that hit home, right? Because mm-hmm. I mean, I, I don't know about you guys, but I've been in situations where my husband is out of work and regardless of how well I'm doing, it still feels like um for him, mm-hmm. I know that it fe- it just feels like a letdown, right? And and the same has gone for my father when he's been out of work or other men that I've known that I've been friends with when they're out of work. It doesn't matter how well the family is overall, how well people are doing. You can still eat. You still have a roof over your head. But there's just this hanging umbrella over a man when he, 
you know, can't provide for his family. And it's just, I feel like this movie is hits it right on the head and it's such a stigma that people don't talk about. And I feel like with, with Steve and with the Freelings and how seeing Steve go from poltergeist to poltergeist two and seeing his character transition. And I think Jerry, you, you hit it last week when we talked about this, the, the character progression for Steve from one to two throughout two is the great, is the great character arc of poltergeist. I mean, everyone else very much stays stagnant where Steve grows and changes and falls and rises. And it's, it's such an interesting uh, it's such an interesting character to watch. Oh, totally. And and what you were saying about, you know, like men being out of work, kind of feeling that kind of like pressure, you know, there was a time uh, after I stopped writing for like Fangoria a few years and like a couple mm-hmm. of the writing homes kind of dried out around that time. Like, I, you know, I was kind of freaked out for a while. I was like, oh, my God, what am I going to do? I feel like a failure. And it's a little funny, like little tiny story. But a friend of mine was making a film and he was like, hey, dude, you should read for this film I'm making. Like, I, I totally thought about you for the character. I was like, okay, what is it? And he was going into detail, and he was like, yeah, it's this guy. He's just like a real piece of shit. He can't really, like, you know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> casting. And he's like, oh, no, no, I didn't mean like that. But, like, like the part with Steve, and it, it's interesting because, uh, you know, Joe Beth Williams' character is kind of in, in that scene I was talking about a second ago when Steve's trying to make a light of everything. She's the one that's kind of like, you know, I'd like the house again. I'd like to just do that. You know, I'd like to do this. I'd like to get back on her feet. I'd like to, you know, do that. And it shows how, not clingy, but kind of how much he needs his family in that scene. Because he's just telling her, you know what, I like this. I'm okay with this. Like, you know, it's us. We're here together and that kind of stuff. And like, it just shows a side of that character. I mean, I love this film, but it shows a side of Steve that, like, I just love seeing. Because, I mean, as a father... You know, there's there's moments where we do feel that pressure and sometimes, you know, it, it kind of starts cracking us, you know, like there, there's moments where that scene, what it means to me is like there's times where things happen to your family that are so catastrophically bad mm. that you just have to smile and find appreciation that you're there together. And that mm-hmm. scene, I think, to me, is the best scene in the entire movie for me. fact that you have this family that still is very warm towards one another, despite what they've gone through, um, is part of what makes it such a really good movie overall. Um, one thing I would like to talk about is the one character that unfortunately could not be back for this movie due to um, being murdered at the hands of her boyfriend af- uh, before, I think prior to Poltergeist even coming out. Am I right about it was, that? Or, so, it was. With Dominique Gunn was who unfortunately like strangled to death by her boyfriend who got was only in prison for like three years for it. So fucked up. And they had broken up prior to mm -hmm. this, too. And this is so fucked. It's such Mm -hmm. a fucked story. What happened to Dominique? She was found in her driveway after he came. And it did happen prior to the release of Poltergeist. And they didn't address it in Poltergeist, Mm -hmm. too. And I feel like I feel like um, I I had read somewhere that that it it was originally addressed that she was off in college. Mm -hmm. And that would have been such a great line for us to see because Mm -hmm. I Poltergeist 2 was very much about well we have to battle this together as a family but if you are very familiar with Poltergeist you know that Dana's not there and um 
really one line of Dana is in college mm-hmm. or Dana's not here would have been uh, efficient for this, but it just didn't happen. And it's really unfortunate because I feel like it was just purposefully overlooked. Um, and it's a, it's a real disrespect to Dominique Dunn. It felt very odd to me that there was no mention of Dana at all in the movie. Like, mm-hmm. like you said, all it had to be was like a one-off line. It could mm-hmm. have been, it could have been mom or dad like hanging up the phone, being like, "Well, we'll see you over break." Like, can't you know? Well, totally. You know, I mean, if if you think about like the Fast and the Furious franchise, after Paul Walker dies, there's been like two hundred thousand mentions of that character in yes. every sequel afterwards. You know what I mean? Like yes, that's that's. I think that's one of my only gripes about Poltergeist too. Agreed. I mean, like, they don't they don't address it whatsoever mm-hmm. at yeah. all. It's just ignored, and that's that's that again. That's a disservice to Dominique Dunn. Absolutely, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yes. Would that lead us into uh, maybe a further discussion of some of the other elements? Shit. The yeah, the shit. the uh, the curse that. Uh, is so well. Let's save the curse to the okay. end. And let's cover All the right. movie first, I think. Yeah. But yeah, we'll definitely get to the, I think we'll definitely get to the curse tonight overall. So mm-hmm. you know, while the first movie, the first movie was more focused on the children for me as a child, that's how I felt. And now rewatching it as an adult, I do feel like it's very much a movie for parents. Mm-hmm. And now mm-hmm. pulling into Poltergeist two, it's very adult-oriented. We don't get a lot of Carolyn. We don't get a lot of Robbie. And there is no Dana, of course. Um, so it's very much the Steve and Diane show. And the inner demons of Steve pulling out through Kane and just in general what he's battling. Diane, you know, Diane's doing all right. She's got her clairvoyance and her spiritual... Um, uh, intuition that she has inherited possibly or learned from, I don't know if it's nature or nurture from grandma Jess. And just um, there's, there's a few different stories here, but the one of the inherited clairvoyance through the three women, and then also the, the struggles of Steve himself, there's so much to unpack in poltergeist too, that it, um, again, it feels like such a, uh, such a continuation of Poltergeist 1. 1 and 2 are very much, to me, like I said, the same movie. And watching the family, like Jerry had mentioned, deal with the trauma of Poltergeist 1, where Diane is kind of the same character. Like, yeah, that's happened, and this kind of shit happens. Spiritual stuff happens. And Steve's like, okay, well, I lost everything, and I got to rebuild from the ground up. Um, it's, it's... It's a really interesting movie to watch. Also, I mean, the uh, home insurance stuff cracks me the hell up. You know, they're, they're trying to have a claim for, like, homeowner's insurance, but their house has disappeared. So, right. so the insurance company said <laughs> you're right. The insurance company said we can only label we can only uh, label it as missing at this point. Yes. Like I'm, the, the humor in the movie, I think, is great, too. Because what's funny is, like, we got little subtle bits of that from Steve in the first movie, but it was more situation stuff. Mm-hmm. But when this one, I, I just think Steve's hilarious in the first, like, mm-hmm. film. Like, mm-hmm. it, really, it, it really succeeds in getting its viewer back into, like, being comfortable with the family right mm-hmm. from the beginning. I mean, like I said, we got that really great setup in the first film. In the second movie, we get kind of comfortable again, and then – all hell breaks loose through a 
phone this time instead of a TV. Mm-hmm. I love the stuff about the, the, the line about how Robbie's trying to get the mom to buy the TV and she's just not having it. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. And I remember like and when they're listening to the ball game on the radio on the and radio. he's like, did you see that son? He's like, well, no, we don't have a TV. So <laughs> use your imagination. <laughs> and that's the, that's the thing, right? Because the original was pulled from um, possibly cold from a, a twi- or inspired by a Twilight Zone rich, written by Matheson. But this is also very similar where Caroline is talking to her grandmother, just like a, um, long distance call i think was the twilight zone where Mm -hmm. the child is talking to the grandmother and it's 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 kind of like a yeah we're gonna take from you so what if there's anything that the third movie does well uh, Mm. other than nothing is Mm -hmm. (laughs) it doesn't seem like a twilight episode or twilight correct (laughs) you're right on that one see the Speaking on the idea that like the first and the second films both feel like a continuation in one story, uh, and you see this family go through so much, and they're they have the risk of being broken so many times, so many damn times for the through through the first two movies, that you go through this journey with them. And I mean, I'm not going to talk about it too much because that'll be next episode. Mm-hmm. But I think the biggest slap to the journey of the characters, the slap to that face is the third movie where basically Carol Ann's just tossed aside to go live with relatives because they uh-huh. don't want to anymore. Like, watching the first two films, like, even, like, when my heart just breaks thinking about those characters doing that in the third movie, you know, because right. the, the second yep. movie is such a good continuation of that kind of familial bond. I mean, right. even just ahead just a second to the very end, you know, they, they give they give uh, Will Sampson's character their car, and then they realize they don't have a ride home, and they're, they're all running. Home. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's such a fun, positive, loving note, you know? Yeah. What do we think of, you know, one of the things I thought of when I was watching this movie, kind of like the trope of the magical person of color character that's been set <laughs> to save the white right. family. Um it, you know, I don't like to use the word problematic when I look at older movies and well, try to put them through the lens of 2019. Right. Because that's not always fair. But it it's, well, it was you know. 1986, right? So it was 1986, and we have to put ourselves there. Because otherwise, if we start doing, um, you know, I mean, speaking as a exennial, if we start doing the millennial thing, right, where we're like, well, Friends is problematic and Seinfeld is problematic, sure. Well, Friends is problematic because it's terrible. I mean, Friends is problematic because it's fucking awful. <laughs> sure. Yeah, fuck Friends. Nobody likes Friends. But, but you know, these these think pieces from 20-somethings who didn't see these at the time, it's, it's a lot different to have pulled this from the time. And I think in 1986, right, mm-hmm. it was a very different, um, it was a very different time. And it's not like like we're looking back and saying like everything's fine because it's not but at the same time i mean they got they cast will sampson from once over the cuckoo's nest and mm-hmm. i mean it's a it's a great casting and he's a great character he's a very hopeful character that taylor and he's a great antithesis or whatever to to, to kane and i i i don't i personally don't have an issue with with this mm-hmm. setup in the in the film I think what's also happening, too, is you're setting up a different kind of spirituality against the kind of spirituality that Cain was sets up. So you have these um, you have this sort of weird 
pseudo Christianity, you know, sort of a Western, um, well, I mean, uh, Native American religion is Western too, but you know what I mean. Um, but just very uh, different kinds of spirituality uh, of uh, fighting against each other in an interesting way. And I think that's, I, I don't know um, entirely what, what, what they're getting at with it, but it's, but it's fascinating. And I, I think it's, it's a, um, I think it's well done and it's interesting. Uh, I don't really know where to go with that, but yeah, I, 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 I liked that element. I think it serves the story very well. Uh, mm-hmm. I think it serves it very well. And like you said, it's kind of too, uh, opposing religions, kind of two takes on religion fighting each other, yeah. and I, I love I love that the more mystical and yeah. the more personal ones is is the light, and it, yeah. it's yes. it's kind of man yeah. man uh, made religion that is the dark in it. So I think yes. that's what I think you're getting. I think I think that's what it is. You have sort of a spirituality against sort of a, an institutional. Yeah, yeah so and I think it's unfair to say just because this is this that it's bad. I think that I think that the Native American side of the spirituality pulling in and fighting the evil forces of Cain is um I think that's that's absolutely fine in 1986 and I think that it's fine in 2020 is that where we are now? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I think that it's fine. That and I, I think I'm more offended by the fact that Carol Ann was pulled through a puddle in a parking structure in a high scraper, a skyscraper <laughs> in the third movie. <laughs> we'll get there next week. <laughs> we'll get there next week. That, that's burned in my brain too, Jerry. But I mean, I, I love, I love the character of Taylor. But also, can we talk about like, I mean, there's literally marital rape in this, and like, I think that that's where, I think that that's that's more problematic than Taylor the character because I feel like Taylor the character is pretty well flushed out. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that I think that Steve being possessed by Cain and raping his own wife is mm-hmm. much more problematic than than what we see in Taylor. Well, I, I mean. I think that that kind of shows how diabolically evil Kane is. Right. Because sure. Yeah. It's not, it's not Steve at all. Of it's course. Very, no. Like, yes. Alcoholism. The alcoholism is 100% Steve. Uh, but I, I think it, it really does a good job of showing just how pathetically evil Kane was. Mm-hmm. I mean, everything from leading his entire flock to their death, mm-hmm. you know, like, he is truly the beast. You know, and I think that that well, well, any rape scene kind of makes me extremely uncomfortable. Like any of it, I'm I'm really bad with like rape revenge movies. Even mm-hmm. these days, I just can't yeah. do it. But uh, I I do think that it really does a good job of not being rape for kind of rape's sake. I mean, mm-hmm. we're on like what the third or fourth movie in a fucking franchise of I Spit on Your Grave at this point. Mm-hmm. Like, well, I think, no, it's not. It's yeah. not. It's fucking pathetic. But. Uh, you know, it's not that. It's not exploitative. I th- I think as a story, uh, you know, story-wise, I, I think it fits really well. Uh, and Kane as the beast that eventually comes out. I mean, God, can we talk about how great H.R. Giger's design of that yeah. is? Yeah. Let's move on. Yeah, let's talk about, because I think one area that this movie really. Julian... Yeah, no, go ahead. One one area where this movie really, I think, outshines the original Poltergeist is in the special effects department. And what's interesting is Geiger was disappointed with his designs overall. Um, He wasn't on set 
kind of overseeing them. Like he would send over his sketches and his ideas and then, um, you know, his production team would bring them to life. And I think he said, looking back, he wishes he was a little bit more hands on that. He wasn't quite happy with how they came out, but I think the effects here, not only the, um, warm, but also like the braces scene, like that braces scene where Robbie is, Yes, and even the beast at the end, that never would have Mm. happened had Julian Beck been well, right? So Mm. Geiger never would have come in and and designed the beast because there never would have been um, a a need for the beast had Julian Beck been well and Kane could have carried on through the end. I think that this was... um, The the monster and the effect design is so much better in two than it was in one and so much more well thought out and that's because of geiger of course oh yeah it looks great i love it It looks great and i tell you what that worm and then the vomit creature that it sort of evolves into those again i mean i i mentioned last week you know the kinder trauma you know this is this that's the scene uh and honestly i've never been much of a drinker (laughs) and I, I am not kidding you. I think it's because of this movie. Mm-hmm. Wow. I, I mean, I and and I I I say that. I mean, it's not like I never drink. It's just that it's never been much of a thing for me. And honestly, I when I went back and I saw this movie again and I saw that scene again, having totally forgotten about it, I was like, I wonder if that's why. Because that terrified me so much. And I've never had tequila with a worm in it. Brian, you're, <laughs> no, Brian, I, I'm right there with you. I, I held off on drinking until I was probably like 23, 24, 25. I mean, I was older when I started drinking. Now I drink. But yeah. the thing is, is I, I, I don't know if this is what did it for me. But I think in therapy, I'll explore that. But it, <laughs> it, it, it was very similar where well, just here, just seeing, just seeing. Seeing the project, the just the not even projectile, but just the vomiting of the beast and the worm out of out of Steve. That was always such a clear image in my brain. And mm-hmm. as a child, and again as an adult, the scarier part is how is Steve's actions while Kane was inside of him, not the expulsion of Kane. But right. as a child, it's the right. expulsion it's of the worm that just makes you. Now I watch, and what really terrifies me is how uncanny uh, Craig T. Nelson is um, channeling that character of yes. It's terrifying that you know, you know that idea that something can take you over while yes. you are out of yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I. One of the things that maybe it's because, you know, I was I've been thinking a lot about The Shining and Dr. Sleep. I saw a lot of parallels between The Shining and this movie hmm. uh, that I didn't that I didn't notice before. I mean, you have this this force trying to get a child because of their power, you know, very much hmm. like in the show. You have the father being possessed by that same evil in an attempt to to get the child and some of those sorts of things. I mean, it, 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 it it's not to me any way a, a ripoff or anything like that, but, but I just saw some of those parallels and I thought, well, that's, that's some, that's some heavy stuff that sort of goes through this idea of an adult, a, a parent, not just an adult, but a parent um, being possessed in a way 
in both cases, alcoholism being involved um, to hurt their child. And part that's what, really frightening. Part of what makes that scene work so well, too, is you know, when, when he's possessed by, by Cain at that point, Cain's not making Steve say anything that Steve hasn't felt to some degree at some point. I think, and I think that's part of what makes that scene so effective overall, is that, you know, when he is lashing out against Carol Ann, because I think it would be a very human response to look at your child and, and look at, like, look at all the grief this child has caused our family. Look where we are because of, even though it's not her fault, and mm-hmm. deep down, yes, you still love your love your child overall, but it's a very human thing to think, like, if we just never had this kid, we wouldn't be in this situation and we would be happy. And not only that, not only that, like if we just hadn't had this child, but you didn't want this child Mm -hmm. coming out. And that's such a dark place for Steve to go. Mm -hmm. Caroline was never wanted and this happened. And that's, that's just, I'm not a parent, but I, um, as an adult, that struck me really hard. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, totally. And I mean, what easier way to manipulate someone and bring out the worst thoughts in them than what they struggle with? Oh, I mean, yeah. I mean, I, I think that that is, like Brian said, s- such a great parallel between The Shining and Poltergeist 2. Mm-hmm. You know, Jack in The Shining, I mean, it was alcohol that really made him a horrible person, you know, that abused Danny before they went to the overlook and all this stuff. It was alcohol that brought out the worst. And again, I'm not talking trash on anyone that drinks. I mean, you know, like it's something I struggle with, but with that being said, like, uh, you know, I think though people that have like maybe a bad connection with it, you know, those are, you know, that's what I'm talking about. Jack or, you know, Steve obviously struggled with it. And that's a that's the crazy thing about addiction. What it does is takes these insecurities that you have inside and amplifies them and brings out those awful things that goes through that that, that always like just flows through everyone's head at some point. But we're all good enough people not to bring that shit out and realize that it's just a stupid thought. Mm-hmm. You know, the exactly. fact that Steve yeah. is so manipulated by evil through his addiction, through his alcoholism, through that stuff, I think it makes – and this is what's so great about both the first two movies, that mm-hmm. it it makes – it takes such great realistic looks at the uh, imperfections of humans through a supernatural ghost movie. Like mm-hmm. I, I – it, it just – watching movies like Poltergeist 2, it just makes me just that much – be that much in, more in love with the horror genre. You yes. know, that we could, we could take these really – heavy ideas and themes that are realistic, that are human and kind of shine a light on them through genre stories. And I think this one does such a great job at that. Yeah. I mean, I'm friends with a screenwriter who um, has told me before that genre is just a blanket, just a blanket, right? Because horror is always going to be horror slash comedy slash family slash drama. I mean, and and it's very, apparent in the poltergeist series 
Not so much three. I mean, I haven't revisited that in a while, so I'm looking forward to that next week. But but one and two especially, um, it's it's a family story. And I think that we very much focused on Steve here, where um, Steve's character arc rises and falls and rises back up again. But I think that we would be um, at a disservice to not talk about Grandma Jess and Diane and mm-hmm. Carol Ann and the three of them where – Whereas now in 2020, they would be referred to as what, like empaths? Mm-hmm. But back in 1986, they were clairvoyant and they they felt a little deeper than the rest of us do. And, um, and whether that was inherited or learned behavior, um, they Grandma Jess became a savior to them the same way that Taylor did and Tangina did. Uh, they were mm-hmm. all very much on the same level. They were all very much there to help this family who they grew close to and they related to and it it became much bigger than just the steve story whereas Mm -hmm. the steve character arc again is a very brilliant character arc that i didn't appreciate until honestly until we talked about it last week the steve character arc is so interesting and rewatching this in poltergeist 2 was was a a real eye-opener for for me um but Grandma Jess down to Diane, down to Carol Ann. And when Gra- Grandma Jess died and Diane was was crying and Steve was holding her and they delivered that news to the children, it just it's it's such a real, mm-hmm. genuine moment, just like Poltergeist. I don't think Poltergeist 2 is lacking any genuine moments the way that many sequels do. It's still as tender and as sweet and as real as as mm-hmm. the original. Also, I mean, it's a great testament to not only the writing, but I mean, performance-wise, because yes. I mean, Geraldine Fitzgerald as Grandma Jess. I mean, she's barely in the movie, but you get a fully fleshed-out character just in those few scenes, mm-hmm. you know. And and it becomes, I mean, like you're talking about, you know, like three generations of of women. It becomes like a story uh, about kind of being like that stuff being passed down. And I think if anything, the passing of grandma Jess really allows Diane to realize how much Carol Ann means to her as a daughter, even more than she already did. Like she, if she fought, if she fought during the first movie, I I think she fights just as much, if not more in this one, Mm -hmm. it becomes a movie about realizing what the people closest to you, what they really mean to you. And I think that the story of Grandma Jess and Diane and Carol Ann really illustrates that. Mm. Yeah. And, and I, I agree with you. And I think that, I think we didn't touch on this as hard as I wanted to last week, but Dr. Lesh too, Beatrice Strait, who played her, her small, <clears throat> very, very small part was a very involved beautiful part and a beautiful testament to what she believed the afterlife was. And, you know, I'm an atheist, but if I were to believe anything, I mean, I think it would come from what Dr. Lesh was talking to Diane about just this, this beautiful light that pulls people in. And, and I think that these small bit parts like Dr. Lesh and like grandma Jess and these small parts that really, um, just enchant the audience are, are are just part of the the magic that is the poltergeist franchise. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and also, I mean, I mean, there's so many people. That's what I love about this movie. There's so many people that kind of shine a light on and recognize for their their contributions. I mean, I was just I was researching this movie a while back. Uh, not me a while back, like two days ago, actually. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I mean, I was noticing that Noble Craig played yeah uh, that's right played the little creature 
Yeah. And I was looking up credits and he was in six different movies and they were all like really great horror films. Like he, he was in, he played a creature in Bride of Reanimator. He played mm-hmm. uh, a version of Freddy in Nightmare on Elm Street 5. He was in The Blob. He played the sewer monster in Big Trouble in Little China. He was the vomit creature in Poltergeist 2. And But I think what's really important is his first movie, that snake movie, he played Tim McGraw, the snake man. Oh, mm-hmm. my God. <laughs> we really need to address Tim McGraw as the <laughs> snake man. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Like, I, I, speaking on the special effects and stuff, I mean – I, I do think, and I'll probably get shit for saying this, but I do think the special effects are even better in this one. Uh, agreed. Agreed. I, I, I agree too. I mean, I've never had braces, uh, you know, but I did a lot of drugs in my teenage years and had to get my whole mouth reconstructed in my early twenties. But oh, I mean, man. <laughs> watching like the braces scene, you almost feel that horror that people have to go through with mm-hmm. that. And it also, you're right, but it also um, dissuaded me from getting braces. This particular scene was traumatizing because I have very, my teeth are gappy. And um, when I was a child, my parents brought me to an orthodontist and all that was in my head was Robbie and these braces. And logically, I know my braces aren't going to trap my head. But at the same time, I'm like, you know what, guys, I'm good. I'm good. I'm fine i live with my gaps i'm okay so i just mm-hmm. this movie works. influenced my teeth <laughs> it's funny how that works. you said that you didn't get braces because of that and uh you know brian said that he probably didn't drink a lot because of this movie <laughs> for me anytime i would go on vacation to the beach or anyone else and i would stop in those specialty stores and you see that candy with like like insects in it oh, oh yeah, yeah. The oh. thing i would think of is that worm in poltergeist 2 uh-huh. I'm with you. I'm with you. I've never had one of those. No. <laughs> no way. <laughs> the influence of this movie into our psyche as 80s children was way bigger than we gave it credit for, right. I think. <laughs> so, I, I don't know. I myself don't have much more on this movie overall. The one thing I, I think, like you were talking about Diane's character, I feel like Diane, by and large, gets sidelined for a lot of this movie. Mm-hmm. I think that's fine. I think her character is a very stagnant character and a very reliable character in that mm-hmm. she's connected to the spiritual world and she feels a little bit deeper than the rest of us. But I don't think that her growth is very important to either of these movies. I think it's more about the family in general and where Diane is kind of a constant. Steve is more of a, a shifting figure. Okay. Also, I think the family, I mean... Where individually, I mean, they're interesting, but I, I think individually, Diane's really, maybe not as fleshed out as the first mm-hmm. film. But mm-hmm. I do think that her character is so crucial to the whole ensemble of the movie, which is so yes. important. I mean, it seems like the Freelings are just strongest when they're together. And that really, really is a successful thing about the script and how great it's written. Uh, it's about... Uh, you know, familial bonds. Like I said, it's about, you know, taking that fracture that was put in your life between you and your loved ones and, you know, filling in those cracks, you know, knowing mm-hmm. that they'll be there, but working together to defeat whatever's coming at you. And I think Diane is such a crucial part of that, even at the end of this film. 
another thing I like is with Steve again um, that I just was sort of reflecting on is um, he's taken on this spiritual journey where he is and not in a toxic way he's he's given sort of guidance to reclaim uh, his manhood his masculinity you know as his his role um, and in early in the film when he feels clearly like he doesn't have that because he was you know he he's being a door-to-door salesman something that he clearly despises and all these things and but he's uh given this opportunity to to um face down this enemy and um but you know like i said it's 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 having being getting a sense of his his role back but not in any way that is toxic or you know lording over the rest of the family in some sort of negative way but mm-hmm. being a strong and and uh, you know being the provider being the influence that you know maybe gives him worth again uh, by the also, end of the film. yeah also Craig T. Nelson, like, I think really shines at that kind of role. I mean, I'm not even joking when I'm saying, like, I mean, he kind of plays the same character in The Incredibles. Not only The Incredibles, but, I mean, mean, you can look at Coach, right, of course. But there's Parenthood, too. I don't know if any of you have watched Parenthood. Mm -hmm. He's fucking brilliant in was so great. He was my favorite character on the show. Of course. Craig T. Nelson will always be the shining light in whatever uh, script he's given. He, He he really steals the show. And you're right, The Incredibles. My God. All right. Let's talk curse. All right. Yeah. So the thing about Poltergeist is I think anyone who is familiar with the movie is familiar with the quote-unquote Poltergeist curse where we saw you know a number of persons involved, especially with the first two movies, pass on at far too young of an age. Yes. I wish the actors in Poltergeist 3 had passed on the roles. Wow. Correct. That went, I thought that was going somewhere. Much I have more to talk about with Poltergeist 3 and like schoolyard rumors. But if we're going to talk about the curse itself, we mm-hmm. need to start with Dominique Dunn. And we need to start with how she passed prior to the release of Poltergeist. And that is the first instance of the curse. We can t- also talk about the actual... Uh, the actual remains that were used in the pool scene with Joe Beth Williams, correct? Mm-hmm. Where people think that that may have been part of it. Um, but I think we really need to pay respect to Dominique Dunn and uh, what she brought to the table in Poltergeist 1 and what was forgotten in Poltergeist 2 when we talk about the curse. Right. Now go for it. I mean, I don't really have that much more to say. She just did a really great job, bang up job. And then she was mm-hmm. she she passed way too much. She passed way too early, and yeah. at the hands of somebody that um, didn't didn't uh, spend enough time paying for his crimes. And then we move on to uh, who should we move on to next? Should we move on to Kane? Should we move on to Julian Beck? Sure. Well, I think yeah. Let's move on to yes, the big yes. one is Heather O'Rourke. The big one Heather is Heather O'Rourke. Yeah, I mean, she died of well, uh, basically like this wasn't like a rare like intestinal blo- like septic wait, blockage wait, that mostly on, found in males. Before you go on, Jerry, is Veronica saying like the untimely death of a twelve-year-old is like no biggie? Like, eh. 
<laughs> she had no, a good no. run. She had a good no, run. No, 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 What I'm saying is, um, is is Heather O'Rourke died after Poltergeist three. So Heather O'Rourke, you're right, Jerry, that she passed away from a very rare intestinal blockage that she had been battling throughout the filming of Poltergeist three. Mm-hmm. She powered on and she said, I need to keep doing this. She tried to go to school. She tried to go to school the day before she died. And her parents said, you know what? We're going to call an ambulance on you. She was very sick, cardiac arrest in the ambulance. She was 12 years old and she passed. Um, If we're going to talk about Heather O'Rourke, we need to talk about the poster in the original film. I have no idea what this refers to. Yeah, yeah, go for it. Really? Fellas! Fill us in. The Darth Vader poster? The alien no. poster? The alien poster? That really... I, I was like, what little kids have alien posters in well, their room? Well, that's very interesting because we had H.R. Geiger and Poltergeist too. Right? There let's, you go. Let's go ahead and fast forward past that. But we need to talk about... Oh my goodness, I'm so excited to bring this information to you. So, Poltergeist 1 was filmed in 1982. There was a poster for the Super Bowl number 22. Dread Central wrote wrote a report on this. They wrote an article on this. So 22 was actually the Super Bowl in 1988. The poster behind Heather O'Rourke's bed was Super Bowl 22, 1988. It said 22, and it also said 1988. The odd thing about this is that Super Bowl 22 in 1988, six years in the future from when Poltergeist 1 was filmed, takes place in San Diego. Mm -hmm. Heather O'Rourke went to the hospital in San Diego the day that Super Bowl 22, 1988, happened. Yeah. That is insane. She passed the next day. Nobody knows why this poster happened. Nobody knows where this poster came from. Nobody knows why it was six years in the future. But the very scary thing is that this particular Super Bowl behind little Carol Ann's bed in Poltergeist 1982 happened in San Diego, happened at Super Bowl 22, happened in 1988. And all of these things came together, and Heather O'Rourke fell ill this date, Super Bowl 22, 1988, and passed the day after, after she went to the hospital. That's pretty Very scary shit, and nobody can explain that poster. Why did you guys have to choose this franchise? I'm so sorry! (laughs) (laughs) It was all Veronica that picked this one. to say yeah, so, so um so i'm a, so with the three of you not knowing that history it's it's um it's a very small part of the curse right so it's it's a very weird coincidental issue that happened and nobody can explain it and um heather o'rourke did pass in 1988 at 12 years old because of an intestinal blockage that led to cardiac arrest and sepsis and that poor little girl she just she loved being class president and it's just a very tragic thing that happened to Mm -hmm. heather um if we're to move on julian beck was dying as poltergeist 2 was being filmed and 
That is a parent as an adult watching this film. That is a man yeah, who is not well. That's a man who's right. dying from cancer. As we age, we see people die from cancer and we see people who look like Julian and we pay tribute to Julian Beck as one of the most horrifying villains of all time in Poltergeist mm-hmm. 2 because, my God, that Kane character, he couldn't have played that any calmer and sweeter and more terrifying and and god bless julian beck and then we can move on to will samson right who passed a little too early he was our tailor he was our um our native american spiritual guide and in poltergeist too he was a chief in one flew over the cuckoo's nest and he died of a degenerative illness um at 53 i think it was way too young mm-hmm yeah, so there's a bit of a there's a bit of a um, <laughs> a legendary curse that goes along with Poltergeist, Poltergeist two, Poltergeist mm-hmm. three. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I I agree with I mean I mean the uh, man that poster. Uh, no, right? <laughs> right? I, I understand that. I understand. Believe in maybe the curse because of that. But I mean, I I to be. I was actually talking to my wife about this earlier today. I have a hard time believing in the curse in general sure. because I mean, I mean, let's just be honest. People die. You know what yes. I mean? Like I've, I've, I've seen, uh, you know, older people die. I've seen younger people younger die. People, I mean, yep. people die. You know what I mean? It's a fact of life. And neither I mean, Julian Beck nor Wilm Sampson were very um, unexpected, right? Because Will Sampson hadn't had a degenerative illness and Julian Beck was in the midst of dying as he was filming this this mm-hmm. movie. So it wasn't this big surprise, like Poltergeist caused them to die. But I think that the Poltergeist gir- curse kind of latches onto anything bad mm-hmm. that happens. Plus, Craig T. Delson lost his hair. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's the biggest curse is that Craig really went bald afterwards. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, but what I'm saying is like, in, honestly, though, like, seriously, uh, an old friend of mine, uh, his family, I guess he, I was just reading this actually online today and it bummed me out. Uh, I guess his little sister got married and, uh, recently and they just, they just realized they were pregnant or something like that. And her husband cut her, cut his hand on like a little saw at home and went to the doctor, went to the doctor and then went into cardiac arrest. And for some reason, like he got an infection, went to his brain, went into a coma and died like within the next last two days. You know oh what I mean? God. Like, I like that's that's spooky and like that's definitely unexpected. But I don't think he died because he watched I don't know Death to Smoochie once. You know, I, I don't I don't think <laughs> sure. that I, I you know what I mean? Like, I find it hard to believe, and I'm not a skeptic. I mean, I'm very I I very much believe in like spirituality, and you know, I have my own belief system. But at, at the same time, like the poster and stuff, yeah. But like I I, I don't know, like. I, Maybe maybe I'm just a skeptic when it comes to this. I don't know. No, I hear I, I, you I, on that. Like, I, go ahead, Brian. Uh, I, I was going to say this is this reminds me of you know I know the different franchise, but you know The Exorcist. There were yeah. nine nine deaths uh, connected to to uh, the filming of just the first Exorcist movie. Yeah. And, and you know, if you watch the documentaries on that, I, mean, I think it's called Fear of God. It's a terrific documentary on the on the Blu-ray. Um, but you know, you have um, uh, uh, <laughs> why can't I remember the mom's name? Um, the, Ellen. You Wilson? know, 
Ellen Burstyn, thank you. Ellen thank Burstyn. you. Yeah, Ellen Burstyn going through all of it, just being so meticulous about all of these things and how crazy it is. And then you have Max von Sydow saying, oh, people die on movies. <laughs> no, <I> mean, <laughs> and, and it's, uh, it's, 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 it's just, you know, how you can look at some of these things. Are they coincidental? I mean, that poster, you got to admit, that's a trip. Um, but, I mean, who knows what all of that uh, really boils down to. And for me, like, being an atheist, it's all very coincidental. To just, it happens, people die. It's a fucking shame that this shit happens. But I think that it's very important to talk about, like, how people believe and how people perceive um, this type of thing in, in the film industry and just in, in life alone. I mean, you you always have those people right where like two bad things happen to them and then they say oh well bad things happen in threes and they just look for that third thing to happen so it's it's just it's people believe in what they decide to believe in and i think that the poltergeist quote-unquote curse is um for separate part of people. The history. yeah it's part yeah. of the history exactly and i think we as humans just sort of look uh for patterns and things that we can latch on to to make yes. sense, things that don't make sense. And nothing and, ever makes and, sense. Nothing and, makes sense. And Especially Poltergeist 3. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was going to say, wait, like, saying that, like, nothing makes sense, I think that's probably as good of a moment to kind of wrap up right now since yeah. next week. Um, I think we got two very good movies out of the way now. And now. It's all downhill from here. So sorry, guys. I'm so sorry. We're not quite <laughs> but there are so many fans that I know of of Poltergeist Three. Really? Let's just own them. <laughs> well, like Elric Kane, Elric Kane of Shockwaves is a big fan of Poltergeist Three. Own him. No, no, I, I love Elric. I haven't watched Poltergeist Three since I was a child, and I remember thinking, "Wow, this feels so very sterile to me." So I can't wait to rewatch. Yeah, it's it's going to be a first time watch for me. Um, luckily, I will be doing it courtesy of the Scream Factory Special Edition Blu-ray. Nice. Uh, which, you know, it's the for like fifteen or sixteen bucks on Amazon. If you're, which, to me, it's surprising. There's not a special edition Poltergeist Blu-ray, mm-hmm. um, but Scream Factory for parts two and three has done like a really spectacular job on both of those movies. You know. As much as I hate Poltergeist three, that release is really good. I uh, yeah, that that Scream Factor release of three is great too as well. Yeah. So, um, but I think that's as good of a place as any to kind of wrap up our yeah. talk on Poltergeist mm-hmm. two. Uh, but you know, listeners, stay tuned. Like after the little extra here, uh, we as it's February is Women in Horror Month and. One of the things that I would like to do this month is kind of shine a spotlight on a number of projects that are uh, helmed by many of the uh, fantastic women that are creating in the genre right now. So we have a little uh, quick Q&A with Jess and Kelly from the Spinsters of Horror site and the podcast I Spit on Your Podcast. Yay! So, yep. Excellent. You got a chance to chat with them earlier today, but through the magic of editing, you'll hear them next. Um so great. Uh, any final words, folks, before we cut to that? It has been nice. Two out of four, Poltergeist. It was mm-hmm. it was such a good good such a good journey. I had a good now. run. Had it's a, been good a lot of run. fun. Yeah, I'm yeah. really glad that we got to talk about this. It gave me a new appreciation for Poltergeist One and Poltergeist Two, which again mm-hmm. to me as a child was a very um one 
one hit film. But I think talking about this with you, with Jerry, with Brian, it, it, it really gave me a new appreciation, um, especially for Greg T- Craig T. Nelson, who I've always yeah. just, you know, Craig T. Nelson fetishes I'm- when you're a child is a great thing. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> it's okay when you're an adult too. You know? I love him. Um, love him. I I would say I'm probably more likely to pull this movie out than the original Poltergeist if I was going to watch something. Um, huh. I you know Are I you really four? enjoyed it overall. Power of four. We just need one more at this point, and we can have a. Um, but yeah, I you know for one thing, it's ninety minutes as opposed mm-hmm. to over two hours, and. Any movie that is 90 minutes or less is an extra half star. For you know, me, I right understand away. that, but I also feel like this movie could have benefited from a little bit more. I think this movie could have really done well with another 20 minutes in there. I, I wouldn't have been mad at it the same way. Poltergeist did feel a little bit drawn out, but Poltergeist 2, I feel like um, we could have addressed Dana. We could have talked a little bit more about the inner demons of Steve. We could have explored a little bit more with Diana and Grandma Jess. Um I felt like there could have been a little bit more with. I don't know. I feel like we got all that. Okay, Mike. (laughs) I feel like we got all that in a nice tight package. Sure. Uh, Yeah. No, that's fine too. (laughs) But speaking of of tight packages, like we don't have Uh Craig T. Nelson in. (laughs) We're missing a lot of tight packages in two and three. We do get Tom Skerritt though. Really quickly, I know we're wrapping up, but really quickly, listeners, if you have not, I would highly recommend Gretel and Hansel. It is already my favorite movie of the year, and it's Whoa. only an hour and 27 minutes. So. Uh, I saw it. I <laughs> saw it as well. Yeah, good movie. Guys, I would that's say, exciting. All right, so we are back next week with Poltergeist 3, but don't go anywhere. We have our chat with Jess and Kelly from Spencers of Horrors up next. Thanks very much. Kelly, you'll find me heading up the social media while drinking a can of beer. And I'm Jess. I'm the witchy spister who can be found behind the scenes crafting. And we are the spinsters of horror. We have a monthly horror podcast called I Spit on Your Podcast. Which is semi-academic with a dash of feminism, and we aren't afraid to tackle tough subject matter or just have a little fun. You can find us on our website at www.spinstersofhorror.com. Follow us on Twitter at Horror Spinsters. You can find the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, and more. And remember, the future of fear is female. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to the Pod of the Pendulum. We have a little bit of bonus content for you this week. We hope you enjoyed our deep dive into Poltergeist 2, and we're glad you stuck around after the end credits. Uh, It is Women in Horror Month this month. Uh, February is Women in Horror Month, and we thought we could do our part here by kind of like shining a spotlight on some of like the really cool projects that are out there, whether they be film, whether they be, you know, writing, whether it be journalism, um, or whether it be other podcasts. And, uh, I'm really happy right now because I am joined by the two women of the spinsters of horror podcast, or I should say the, I spit on your podcast and the spit. Oh, no, no, no. let's try that again. <laughs> sure. Um, <laughs> We are joined by Jess and Kelly of Spinsters of Horror, who also run the podcast I Spit on Your Podcast. It's a show I've been listening to for the past year. Um, they do deep dives into a number of subjects. I love their work on Alien. They have a new show up on Buffy, um, which I have not listened to yet, but I'm really looking forward to kind of diving into that. So Jess and Kelly, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having us. 
Thank you. And we're definitely happy to be here. And thank you very much for this wonderful opportunity. Yes. We've been wanting to talk to you too for a very long time. And I'm finally glad to get a chance to sit down and chat for a little bit, uh, even if it's not like a deep dive over a movie this time. Um, but tell me a little bit about how the site came to be. Like, how, what was, when did you first envision putting something together and how did it kind of evolve? I'm going to let Jess start that one because <laughs> I knew your idea. Yeah. Um, so almost like four years ago, I guess, I started a, a podcast a long time ago called, called The Dark Spectrum with uh, someone who was a huge horror fan. And I was like myself slowly getting into it, um, embracing it, as you would say. And unfortunately, created differences and everything like that. It, it ended up falling through after a year. And so I still wanted to do something where I want to engage in the with, in the horror community and talk about all the themes and all the it, ideas I was having about the different films that I was watching. And I remember after my divorce and moving and stuff like that, uh, Kelly came to visit me and I was like, hey, would you be interested in doing a podcast with me? <laughs> um, we've been friends for like 20 years. Uh, Kelly has been a huge influence on my life when it comes to like the horror genre. And it just kind of seemed like a natural thing to finally just kind of like for the two of us to collaborate together and do something together. And that's how, you know, we just started to start talking about ideas of what we wanted to do and talk about. And then the spinsters of horror was born. So, yeah. Uh, Jess was the originator of our prod full project name, Spinsters of Horror, and I came up with a podcast name. I spit yes. on your podcast because yeah. I love references to movies <laughs> and like a play mm -hmm. on words. So, yes, that, yeah. those were our ideas. <laughs> okay. So you have a lot of puns, basically. It's a pun-based horror <laughs> podcast, <laughs> what you're saying overall. Yeah. Um, so you have been – you said two decades of friendship at this point right now, and I find that yeah. – you know, really interesting because I, you know, as adults, I think it gets harder and harder to stay in touch with the people you grew up with, even though you make some of your best friends or you make what seems like some of your closest friendships when you're a kid. Um, mm -hmm. they, people tend to drift apart. Uh, were you, if you don't mind me asking, were you close throughout those 20 years or do you find that getting to kind of collaborate together again has like made the friendship stronger again? I would say that because mainly our friendship developed when we lived in the same home, a town, but it really kind of took off when we were in different cities. Like I went mm -hmm. away to college and so our friendship has essentially always been a long distance one and a long distance friendship, a long distance, any kind of relationship is, it is a little bit challenging to keep, you know, in touch on top of everything. Cause obviously you know, in-person hangouts are, are just much more intimate and you can just build a bond easier and faster. So it's been, I think, a slow and steady race <laughs> mm -hmm. of building our friendship. But I definitely would say that collaborating and building this project together has has really solidified and strengthened our our relationship, our friendship. I think Jess has discovered a lot of things about herself. I've discovered things about Jess, you know, helping her out through this wonderful journey, this horror journey, <laughs> and encouraging her to, you know, step out of her box a little bit and out of her comfort zone a little bit. And I think that's really made us uh, grow closer together. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I completely agree. Like, 
Kelly, I like, I met Kelly through my ex-girlfriend and after her and I broke up, I never thought Kelly and I would ever talk again until one day she messaged me on, uh, is it MSN messenger? I don't know. Back in the day. <laughs> and oh, she's just like aging ourselves. Yeah, exactly. Hey, I want to still keep chatting with you. And I'm like, you still want to be friends with me? What? And then, yeah. And, and of course, over the 20 years, our friendship has, you know, come, has coming, like has, uh, had its weak points and had its strong points. Like Kelly said, due to long distance relationships and things that happened in our life. But mm-hmm. definitely when we decided to, and we always made sure to make a point to see each other. Like we'd visit each other at least twice a year. Mm-hmm. Uh, I go to, I go to Toronto. She comes to, she comes to Ottawa now. And then once I decided to want to do this podcast with uh, Kelly, uh, like I, like she said, our, just our friendship has strengthened even mm-hmm. more. <laughs> yeah. So how do you determine uh, the content of the show overall? Like how do you, because you have covered a variety of topics through about the 18 and change episodes right now. Um, You've covered the Halloween franchise. You've covered cannibalism, uh, witchcraft, Italian horror. Um, how would you determine what you want to cover each month with the show? Well, we we get together. We have monthly meetings to discuss how we're going to work, you know, plan out each month with regards to the podcast, what we want to do in our Spencer's After Dark events. But then we have every six months we plan out what we're going to, you know, talk about. Uh, We try to be as diverse as possible. There's something that's kind of just like we're super interested in at that time. Um, Because we have, when we first started this project, we made and we add to it all the time. Um, We (laughs) We have a giant list of themes movies, TV shows, topics. So really we kind of just gather from that along with kind of just thinking about what we've already touched on in the last year and plan things out that way to try to be as varied and as interesting as possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we're also like willing to, to like, we will create the six month plan, but sometimes like things will happen, like either in the horror community or something will get brought up that will be like, Hey, this might be a, like a really good time to maybe like switch things up and maybe address this topic. But I will say like the biggest example is like our metal and horror mm-hmm. um, month. Like we had something completely different planned for that month. But then when we ran into Bill Turnbull at, at Stormcrow Manor in Toronto, we're like, Oh, we, we need to like do this. This is amazing to have this opportunity to interview him and, mm-hmm talk about, you know, metal and horror. And I remember you've, you've had shows about your own journey through metal and how you feel like the metal and the horror sub communities kind of intersect with one another as well. Is there any other, you know, kind of like formulative things for you guys growing up where you're like, that has fed into your obsession with horror overall. I think I lose you there. No, wasn't the most elegantly worded question. I'm sorry. So, <laughs> I don't think so. Mm-hmm. I would just honestly, I would need more time to think about it, but I mm-hmm. don't think so. No. I mean, I've been watching horror movies since I was l- too young, really, mm-hmm. to be watching things like Alien and The Exorcist and Pet Cemetery. So they were just, they are in my DNA, so to speak, now. Okay. And for me, I find um, watching horror is very cathartic for me. I've had a lot of like trauma in my life. And so I'm kind of one of those people where like I kind of heal through horror. <laughs> I, you know, I, I see some of the topics and some of the themes that are being addressed. And it's uh, really important for yeah. me to, to do on that journey. Um, looking through the site, I know one of the things that you guys, you post every month, Jess, is the let's scare Jessica to death. <laughs> Yes. Um, (laughs) And I know you've discussed on the show that like 
you kind of not necessarily found horror through Kelly, but maybe like you had said, stepped out of the comfort zone a little bit of what you were, you know, kind of like comfortable watching versus kind of pushing your boundaries overall. And, you know, I guess like what were your boundaries before? Like we did, would you find horror naturally and then found yourself kind of branching out or was it something you really had to be kind of pushed, you know, head first into? Well, like I grew up loving like, original like Frankenstein like monster movies and stuff like that and I love the paranormal I love ghost stories and like really attracted to this like supernatural stuff and so like and I found that through literature first like that's where like really like my horror journey started was I'm was reading a lot um but I stayed away from movies because I'm just like oh my god I don't actually want to see like that stuff on on screen but then over time I got like I started watching like the the classic films and Vincent Price and all that and getting into like the the classic horror films and then you know uh when I got to know Kelly more and go to visit her we always had like this tradition where like I would pick one horror movie uh, from her collection and watch one of those and so that started with like (laughs) Nightmare on Elm Street and Candyman Mm -hmm. and so like a lot of the 80s Mm -hmm. classics and then like slowly I started to like build a taste of like okay I need something more different I need something like I'm very big about atmospheric horror Mm -hmm. and I'm always still a fan of supernatural and like paranormal stuff but I needed I needed more and then over time like Kelly be like hey I think you like this one so like Mm -hmm. Kelly's like my person I go to be like what do you think do you think I like this movie and she hasn't seen it yet she'd be like yeah maybe or she'd be like "Mm, I don't think that's right for you just yet Mm -hmm. but I know like let's scare Jessica to death is like her favorite thing. Um, <laughs> I just said that to her today because today is February 1st. So today was, because uh, we do it the first of every month. And mm-hmm. today was uh, the Women in Horror Month. So Jess's challenge is the Evil Dead remake. Oh, God. Uh, <laughs> and I said to her literally today, like, this is truly my favorite thing that we do. And it was a couple of months into the project where I thought, this would be fun. Um, I'm not going into, like, most of the time anyways, very extreme horror Mm -hmm. because I understand that what I enjoy watching is not what everybody enjoys watching. And I know, Mm -hmm. because I know Jess, I know, and I've learned even through this challenge more of some boundaries and some no-nos and things that are not appropriate, um, like serial killers. Mm -hmm. And, (laughs) um, but uh, I, she's been a great sport and has actually really, really enjoyed and sometimes loved some of the movies that I have forced her to watch. So sometimes Jess needs a little push. Into, <laughs> into stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it seems like you still kind of know, like, all right, this is the limit. We're not going to kind of – we'll toe the line, but we're not going to step over that line at the same time. Yes, yes, yes. yeah. So how would you describe the collaborative nature of putting the show together overall, where you kind of have a plan for what you want to do up to half a year ahead? Um, I would say your show is very similar to one like, say, Good Morning Nancy or even Faculty of Horror, where it tends to be very research-based and kind of dives into like sociological, uh, economic, gender, gender roles, class issues, racial issues, how much research goes into each show uh, versus just letting it rip. Do you want to start this one, Jess? Well, I was going to say it's been kind of a bit of a formula over the last like year and a half because Mm. when we first started, we're just like, 
doing so much research and like people would notice throughout the history of our podcast, some really long episodes, some kind of shorter ones, because we're trying to find that right formula, that right balance that is like Mm -hmm. semi-academic, but also has that nice kind of back and forth. And we're just kind of like, you know, we see an idea and we just kind of start going with it and and having a conversation around it. So we do a fair bit of, we do like a fair amount of uh, research, Mm -hmm. um, but we try to, keep it so that it's research that's accessible uh, for everyone and being able to enjoy, you know, the information that we're providing, but also kind of be like, have an actual genuine conversation about it. Like, you know, like I've always imagined and I always love the idea of being able to like sit with a bunch of people at a bar and just like talk about themes in a horror movie and like everyone bringing their different perspective about it. And that's what I like. Mm-hmm. Kelly. Yeah, so we used to be much more research-heavy, and it took a lot of our personal time. And just like Jess said, trying to find that perfect balance between information, it being educational, but also enjoyable to listen. Uh, We love hearing if people have learned something new, showing them a different perspective, and that kind of changes their perspective. But I think right now, the last couple of months, I think now we've really kind of hit um, a really good balance. We're going to ride it out a little bit and kind of see where it goes. But I think now we've really found uh, a good balance between the information, the discussion, uh, like our banter and the educational aspect of it. So instead of using like six to seven resources, we're maybe doing like three two mm-hmm. to three really good solid ones that we can talk about and have a more uh, concise, well-rounded discussion and conversation about it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Excellent. All right. Are there any particular episodes that you would say jump out? Like if you, if someone were to stumble upon your site and say, where do I dive in? Like what shows would you point them towards? If they want something hard hitting, I would say our rape revenge episode. I was just thinking mm-hmm. that, yeah. <laughs> um, the cannibalism one is also a bit of a hard-hitting one. So yeah. start light, basically. <laughs> Tread lightly. <laughs> if they want to start a little bit lightly, um, one okay. of my absolute favorites <laughs> is the John Carpenter Cosmic Horror one, mm-hmm. of which was almost a year ago now, which oh I can't God. even believe. Um, I would say that one, I love our Buffy ones, maybe just because I'm a bit biased because I am a Mm -hmm. massive, massive Buffy fan, but they're fun. Um, so if you're a Buffy fan, you love the show. I think those are fun episodes for you. I think the space horror one is also one of my favorites and the Italian horror one, just because we both love Italian horror. It's such a very, it's such a unique, interesting genre. And I think that was really our first time getting into, it was branching into, um, international horror and going to a different mm-hmm. country and talking about the the, the various uh, differences between their cinema and North American cinema. So I love those ones. Okay. Jess? Yeah, I, well, you, we share a lot of the same ones, too. I, I think it's funny that you didn't mention the vampire episode because that's, <laughs> <I was> like, <laughs> when we're, like, you know, our third episode in, we're trying to find our stride, but also having a good time talking about vampires. Um, I would also say our exercising the feminine, uh, the feminine was a really good episode to jump into, but I definitely think our rape revenge one, uh, was a heavy hitter, but a good one to jump into. And, mm-hmm. uh, I definitely love the Italian horror one. 
Okay. Which is our most popular one. I don't, I, I don't understand how this one's the most popular mm-hmm. one, but it is. Yeah, People, that one in Exercising yeah. the Feminine had a huge jump in, in, in listenership. I think it was due to maybe subject matter and also our wonderful friends over at um, uh, House of Leaves Publishing shared mm-hmm. our um, episode on uh, possession horror because it's a portion mm-hmm. of a book that they are currently um, – Marketing, that's not the word I'm looking for. I'm sorry. What word am I looking for? Publishing? Promoting. Promoting? (laughs) And releasing called Scared Sacred. Anyways, so those were our two most Mm -hmm. popular episodes. And your cat's weighing in right now (laughs) with a little bit. Yeah, that was Odin. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Naturally. There's always a cat. So where, where do you both envision taking the site like over the next year? Like it seems to have grown. There's been a number of more number of people that are contributing to it. I know that there are some guests on some shows now, like your newest episode with Buffy has a special guest on it. So as to your site grows, as the show grows, like where do you want to take it? We have definitely some 2020 plans of increasing our exposure. So us being on other podcasts, of course, increases our exposure. Um, We really want to, by the end of the year, get on a podcast network. So we're working towards that. Mm -hmm. And overall, just engaging with the community more uh, soon. We will be launching our official Facebook group. Mm-hmm. And we want to expand our merchandise to just have a variety of different things that folks can enjoy and wear and support us with. Excellent. Yeah. And like as uh, Kelly said, um, continue expanding our writing. I know that's something that's also like really important to me. And I know is uh, really important to Kelly as well as our getting our more of our viewpoints out on our a lot of our favorite themes and topics. And mm-hmm. I've got some stuff in the work with my crafting and, and to come out on the website at the end by the end of 2020 so but the biggest thing is ex- more exposure um creating more of a community having more people you know contribute on our podcast and our website and just like really building that out kelly jess thank you so much for taking a few minutes to join us it's been a blast just getting to chat about your site for a little bit and we'd love to have you on you know, to talk about some movies at this point. So once we get back to (laughs) bringing some guests, any final words before we go? Jess, I hope everyone enjoys women in horror month and everything that's going to, that we're going to have come out and that everyone else is going to have come out this month. Definitely. Uh, Check out our Instagram because we are doing the morbidly beautiful women in horror year 11, 2020 challenge. So each day we're going to be posting Um, something on there with regards to whatever the theme of the day is. And tonight will be the first posting. So yeah, everybody enjoy women in horror month, black history month, just enjoy horror and stay spooky.